Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to our new podcast. I'm Al Murray. And I'm James Holland. I'm a comedian with an enthusiast's fascination for the Second World War. And I am a historian, um, and I focus pretty much entirely on the Second World War. Okay, so here's the plan. Whether it survives contact with the enemy, we'll have to wait and see. Our weekly show, we're going to talk World War II, pure and simple. In fact, not so simple, which is why there's so much to talk about. Yep, each week we're going to be telling you forgotten stories. We're going to have a, a theme called A Forgotten Thing of World War II because we couldn't quite think of a title because it's yeah. sometimes it's an event and sometimes it's a person, so it's a thing. Um, we're going to be looking at a piece of Second World War ephemera. Yeah, or, stuff. or stuff. Or stuff. Because if World War II is a war of anything, it's a war of stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, we've got a name as well, haven't we, James? We have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go on then, Al. It's, uh, well, I, I'll do the voice. We have ways of making you talk. It's the name <laughs> of the show. <laughs> but on Twitter will just be a more simple hashtag, we have ways. Okay. Well, I am speaking to you from my kitchen in West London. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note, stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared to accept the primacy of our podcast, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received, and consequently, this podcast is at war with Germany. We have a clear conscience, Al. We have done all that any podcast could do to establish peace. But the situation had become intolerable. And now that we've resolved to finish it, I know that you will all play your part with calmness and courage I didn't and know fortitude. I didn't know you did voices as well. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I can do it if you need to. <laughs> Battle stations. I can do everything if you like. We're going to answer as many of your questions as we can. Um, we'll use the hashtag we have ways on Twitter. And, and actually, we put some questions out Uh uh the other day and we've had some very very interesting stuff come to us so let's get started yeah they've been cracking some really really good questions a fair amount of film questions it has to yes, be yes yeah film and world war Two. yeah I mean, yeah they go uh, together don't they yeah so uh, andy in brum um uh says because al getting irate about the leopard one and a bridge too far amuses me sorry al uh, and what that's to do with is um uh, a book I wrote many years ago called Watching War Films with My Dad. And and the, 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 when you write a story, you need an inciting instant, don't you? And the inciting instant in my uh, enjoyment of history and war films is I went to see Bridge Too Far with my dad when I was eight or nine when it was in the cinema. And he went because uh, he he knew a load of the people who were in First Airborne and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to see this thing on the big screen, their immortalisation. Um, and there's the scene where the tank comes over the bridge and they can't stop it and it's sort of obviously supposed to be a tiger or something and they bring up the pier and they can't stop it and it's not a tiger it's a leopard obviously because it's a film from the 70s and my dad at the time in the cinema went it's the wrong bloody tank like that. <laughs> which uh 
broke the spell, but also but also cast a fresh one that has never left me for the rest of my life. So uh, that explains that. So Andy in Brum says, what's the most incongruous continuity error in a war film? Wrong piece of kit stroke prop. James. Well, I mean, I've got to say, I find it impossible to watch Second World War films without getting really, really wound up. Yep. I mean, you know, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk. I mean, don't get me started. I've got to say, you know, people often cite U571 yep. as being the kind of sort of biggest aberration of all. But for me, the imitation game was pretty rubbish. I mean, it just had absolutely no bearing on reality at all. I mean, not at all. Um, and I just spent the whole film, I was so excited about watching it. I was really looking forward to it, like Benedict Cumberbatch, Big Tick, yeah. you know, Wartime, Bletchley Park, What's Not to Like. Got on there, I just spent the whole thing just sort of wanting to hurl things at the, at the screen. Yeah. Awful. Yeah, I haven't been to see it precisely just don't to firewalled myself against it because i read enough like reviews and you think what that what happened in it they've done that to him you know there's the whole thing where 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 he's sort of blackmailed isn't it and uh yeah, you yeah. know turned no, no, but also you know it's as though there's only sort of six people working in Bletchley park yeah and yeah. they're you know it all revolves around him and yeah. he invents everything and on him the whole u-boat war hinges yeah uh, you know and, and the the bad guy was actually a really good guy. You know, I mean, God, that was that was just monstrous. I can't remember his name now, but I mean, it was just really <laughs> all over the place. Oh, well, good. And then, then, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I remember going to see Fury. Yes. Uh, and, and the opening line, you know, April 1945, you know, uh, American soldiers battling against superior German weapons. I don't you, think you, so. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and how do you make that one out? I mean, yes, it's Fury is... Fury is, I mean, what's I still one, loved it, though. Well, what's wonderful about Fury is we do see we see Tiger one three one from Bovingdon um, out in the open, um, and normally you have to go to Bovingdon and they drive it around the paddock yep. for you to experience that privilege. So to see it out of the, and apparently they laid a road under that under the field they filmed that in. Yeah. Okay. So my my a great great friend of mine, uh, Stephen Hall, directed that scene. Wow. Yeah, and they absolutely did, and he spent yeah. an awful lot of time with Brad Pitt in a Sherman tank. Yeah, and an awful lot of time in a Tiger tank. But as the well. problem and with that that scene in particular is, is the Tiger sat in the middle of a field. I mean, it's sat, that's enough. The fact that there's a tiger sat in the middle of a field and he's not he's not hunkered down somewhere with somewhere else to go when it all when the shit hits the fan and all that. I mean, it's just it's so, I mean, it's silly, really. Yeah, it? no, it's crazy. Uh, you know, the, the crossroads bit at the end is just absolutely hopeless because yeah. you, you know you wouldn't get yourself in a situation where you're a lone tank on a crossroads. What you do is you get on the radio, you call in close air support, and in two seconds flat, you know, Tempest or Thunderbolts have come over and obliterated, well, and, but by that obliterated the, the Germans, and that's it. They're just not wandering around in the yeah, middle of the day. And by April 1945, you've got, you've got, you've got tactical um, air tooling around <laughs> looking for stuff to shoot All shoot the time, up, yeah. All yeah. the time, yeah. yeah. So, okay. But <laughs> funny enough, actually, he then directed, um, he then directed um, Brad Pitt again, and a film called Allied. And he was telling oh, yeah. me there was this one one bit where they were filming a scene in Oxfordshire, which is supposed to be France or something. And they were going down the same same road um and a film and he turned to him and said, Brad, you know, isn't it isn't it incredible that here we are, three years apart or two years apart, doing another Second World War film using the very same road that we used in Fury. And Brad Pitt just turned to him and went, Fucking nuts. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, our next question. So that's it. Imitation game, Fury, and basically all war films, um, as Andy and Brum's answer there. Um, uh, Wolf Burke writes to us saying, what do you guys think of the pattern myth? How many times have we heard he beat Rommel when he got in command in Tunisia four days before Rommel left the continent? 
and in Normandy 20 days after Rommel had been injured and left the theatre. Well, clearly, what I think about that is it's absolutely nonsense, that yeah. myth. It's just complete nonsense. I mean, Patton, Patton was a, a great tactical general. Um, his big problem is that, you know, if you look at Third Army casualties by the end of the war, yeah. they're way higher than anyone else's. Yeah. And, you know, call me boring, but actually I think the broad, brunt, broad front methodical approach actually was the right one for the Allies, which yeah. was very operationally led, yeah. mechanically heavy, all the rest of it. I mean, you know, you've got to think about those Allied armies, about 14 15% infantry, 7% armour, 18% artillery, 20% engineers, something like that. The rest, service troops. Yeah, And, and so you've got to kind of fight according to your setup and that setup is designed specifically so that your frontline casualties are kept to an absolute bare minimum and although they're still incredibly high they are considerably less than all the other major but combatant the pa- nations the Patton fam would say this guy had a lan he uh, look at the way he look at the way he broke out into Brittany and all that sort of thing and i i was kind of thinking, yeah but they, they yeah but the resistance yeah, the SAS had done half the well, well, and, yeah and the, and, and the and the action was the other end of uh, uh, happening in the east really whether that's where the serious german forces were but but, but i think cuz he's he is a fascinating fascinating magnetic characters yeah uh, uh, people you know and he's pearl-handed pistols and and that he and that he lost his job because he struck some soldiers and then he was reinstated and then he was uh, it's sort of it's this larger than life general thing that people get drawn to and there's a whole load of there's a whole load of american generals that no one's ever heard of who are entirely competent and simpson brilliant yeah you know, yeah. who, who remembers him? No one, you know. I mean, even even in Lightning Joe Collins, I mean, he's sort of slightly remembered, but nothing like as well as Patton. Yeah. You know, Collins was just an, an amazing general. I yeah. Mean, re- really, really good. Uh, also, Patton had a curiously high voice. Th- what's all he said? Yeah. Talk like he that. Said, talk like this, you know. Oh, okay. Almighty God. It's <laughs> <laughs> really weird. I mean, you know, when you look at him, you imagine he's got to talk like this and sort yeah. of, you know, be all sort of gravelly and sort of like John Wayne or something. But so you'd say but that, you know, uh, his gut, uh, our guts, his glory, which is what these men used to say about him. Yeah. Is about right. I mean, you talk to, you know, I mean, I've interviewed an awful lot of American veterans. It's a bit the same with Monty. I mean, most of them, some of them think he was absolutely marvellous. Some of them think he was completely awful. But, you know, you then, and it's the same with Patton. Some of them just said, I mean, I remember talking to one guy and I said, what did you think of Patton? He just said, you know, bloody murderer. Yeah. Of an American accent, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A bloody murderer. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Al, we've got our first um, World War II stuff. Yep. And it's your turn in this first podcast. Yes. Um, uh, well, this is, I have this as a paperweight at home um, uh, to describe it. I mean, there will be a photo online of this object. It's... Um, is it a rhomboid? I don't know. I was never, I was never good at geometry. But basically, it's a, it's a piece of metal made up of concentric pieces of metal in a sort of rectang- rounded rectangular edges that work. It's one, two, three, four, five, six pieces of aluminium. It's rather beautiful, and it's, yeah. and it's slightly heavier to feel than it looks like it is. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's got a big hole in the middle. And a big hole down the middle. So uh, any idea what it might be? I- not the faintest, no. Right, but well, it looks, it looks. But well, yeah, I'm a god. I, well, I'll tell you where I got it. Um, uh, on tour, um, I have two tour managers: a guy called Adam and a, a guy called Mick, and they're interested in de- very different things. With Adam, we go to art galleries. With Mick, we go look at aviation stuff. <laughs> so, if we're in the West Midlands, we always go to Cosford. If we're in, uh, if we're in the East Anglia, we always go to Duxford. 
And he and I have been, you know, we're very lucky. We got let into the B-52 and allowed to flick switches in the bottom, of, in the bowels of the B-52, which is a lot of fun. This is from the Isle of Wight. And this is from a factory on, on the Isle of Wight where they make Spitfires. Ah. Uh, and this is the main, this is a cross section of the main spire of a Spitfire wing. Wow. At the factory, they go on about, you, you, the thing you've got to see is the main spire. Because the rest of it, it's struts, it's panelling, it's the wires that operate the ailerons and the rudder control surfaces and all that. But th- they say that this is completely unique. There's no other aircraft that's ever had this idea um, of tubes of um, uh, aluminium put, pushed inside one another, in decreasing size, and then with a, harder, a, a thicker core in the middle. And then they put, it in a, they put it in a great big joist and they bend it. They put two kinks in it and the whole thing locks together. And the idea is that it carries and bears the strength and stress of the wing across the whole spar. Which is why if you do a dive and you reach Mach 0.94 or whatever that guy did in the 50s yeah, near the wings Hong Kong. Don't, the wings don't come off. Right. Yeah. This factory is a fascinating place. So basically, if you find a crashed Spitfire say, uh, on the beach of Dunkirk. And there's a recent, a fairly, in the last sort of decade, there's a recent example of this. There's a Mark I that's been completely rebuilt from scratch. Um, but they, they found enough of that Spitfire. And then what they do at this place in, uh, in, uh, in, on the Isle of Wight is they replace the rest of it, the stuff that needs replacing. So very often, you see a, like a restored Spitfire flying through the sky. It may just be that it's just a badge off the, off the pilot's seat or whatever, that's the, still the remaining genuine article. And the entire thing has been complete. You know, like George Washington's axe, right? And this, this, place, this place, they do that. And it, it, it's amazing. But the spar is, because the wing is the thing with the Spitfire, isn't it? More than anything else. A hundred percent. And um, if you ever, I, I don't know if you, well, when you were at the factory in yeah. um, Art of White, there's also an amazing one called the Aircraft Restoration Company at Dutchford. Yeah, yeah. yeah. John Remain's gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, they're always restoring Spitfires there. Yeah. And when you see the kind of the, the sort of unsheathed wing, so to speak, you know, it hasn't got its sort of uh, its metal yeah. all the way around it. You just look at so there's literally not a single part which is the same as the other as yeah. another. Yeah, it is unbelievably complex and complicated. Yeah. I mean, it is the most difficult thing when you're restoring a Spitfire to make. And you can answer. I mean, look at this. I mean, it it looks like a very modern thing. Yeah, it, it's a thing of beauty. Yeah, but boy, that looks complicated, doesn't it? Well, they've made a lot of work for themselves. I think. I mean, it's interesting because compared to a P fifty one Mustang. Well, 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 and funnily enough, um, uh, because at this place they've got wings up on jigs and they've taken the rotten bits out and put new bits in and all this sort of thing. And uh, and they had wit. They had some wings down that they were doing for the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, and and they had a Messerschmitt one hundred and nine in where they were they were doing bits of. And interestingly, all the engineers were saying, "Oh, these are much better. These are much better made. These are much better. The craftsmanship's what the Messerschmitt, yeah." Well, 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 no, 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 no. I get that. I got that wrong. They said they were much better designed, and so as a as a sort of piece the thing together. Because you're absolutely right. You know, the Spitfires they were mass produced, but they were made by hand. So you've got people mass producing a thing, but they're all drilling their own little rivet holes, uh, one by one individually. Things aren't going on a jig necessarily. So you've got, like they were saying, you said you 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 you've got to drill every single rivet hole for every panel to fit with the original strut because they're not uniform. Yeah. I mean, the, but they were big fans of the Messerschmitt at this place. Well, why wouldn't you be? <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've sat in um, Hans-Joachim Marseille's uh, Messerschmitt 109E 
Right. And it is a thing of wonder. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. it, 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 you could see it's a kind of 1930s design rather than a sort of mid-1940s design. Mm. But it is, it's very cool. It's got a very cool kind of Baker-like grip on the, yeah. on, the, on, on the control column. It's kind of sort of moulded to your hand in a yeah. way that a Spitfire and Hurricane is really kind of, sort of rough and ready. Well, it's and that kind of funny, funny little sort of... Yeah, and you're much lower down. And the, yeah. the seat is much lower down. So you're, it's more like a sort of sports car compared to a kind of, you know, an ordinary car yeah. in terms of the seat position. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's an absolute dog in terms of visibility. I mean, terrible. That, that kind of horrible cage that comes yeah. over you. But the interesting thing about Spitfire is that... Um, you know, Submarine's a really small company, although it was bought out by Vickers, which was enormous. It was Vickers shipbuilding who were making submarines and yeah. cruisers and all sorts of stuff up at Barrow. There was Vickers um, Armstrong that were making tanks and guns and all sorts of stuff. And then there's Vickers Aviation, you know, Weybridge. I mean, Vickers are the military-industrial complex of the 1930s, without Absolutely. a doubt. And they're a product of the First World War. They're like BAE systems or something. They're like a massive modern conglomeration of all different types of defence industry, hundred percent, and it's all cu- completely cutting edge. Yes, uh, I mean this, uh, and it's Barnes Wallace. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and because I always think the thing, the thing you've got to do when you're thinking about Second World War technology is you've got to remember that the Spitfire is the F thirty five is the is the absolutely brand new, um, totally. total um, super fighter, and, and you know, and the, and the Lancaster bomber is a stealth bomber. And, the, and these things, you've got to imagine them like that. But you can't think of them as propellers are old and, and oh, they didn't have radar and all this sort of thing. You know, because after all, H2, but, but H2S on problem. the Lancaster then lasts right through to, they're still using that in the Falklands War in a later iteration anyway. Yes, they are. They absolutely are. But the interesting thing about, about the Spitfire is because it's so brand new, it's, um, and it's made by Supermarine, which is this kind of small little company, yeah. albeit owned by Vickers. It's a small little company in Southampton. And the big problem we have when you're trying to build a new new um, aircraft is you have to make the machine tools first yeah. to make the bits. Yeah. Then you've got to train everyone up. And it's a bit of an old process. Whereas the Hawker Hurricane, which comes, you know, it's a little bit earlier than the Spitfire, but not by much, is basically, a lot of it is much the same design as a biplane, an earlier biplane, like a Hart or a Nimrod or something like this. Yeah. You look at you, you look at them in profile, off, basically. the fuselage and the plane, tailplane, yeah. they're basically exactly the same. And so a lot of the machine tools that you need to mass produce those are already there. Yeah. And the workforce already knows how to make certain parts of it, which is why in 1939 and subsequently in the Battle of Britain in 1940, there's many more hurricanes than there are Spitfires because it's less complicated to make. I mean, they can start the well, production it's che- it. And it's cheaper. and It's cheaper and all the rest of it. It's still a very complex machine to make. But a lot of the hard yards have already been done in earlier models, whereas the Spitfire, as you say, is completely brand new, and so they've got to start from scratch. And that's why production gets a little bit, is a bit slower to get into its into yeah. its sort of groove than the Hurricane. But obviously, once they get into that position, there's the shadow factories at, yeah. you know, Castle Bromwich up yeah. in, in Birmingham and stuff like that, and that, that all comes into play. And suddenly they can start mass-producing these things in much bigger numbers than Hurricanes, which is why from 1941 onwards, you've got lots and lots of Hurricanes. Um, Spitfires are not that many Hurricanes. Well, and also because the, the design is deliberately open-ended on the Spitfire anyway, isn't it? It's, yes, cause it, it isn't absolutely Because is. it isn't a rejigged biplane. It isn't, it isn't basically uh, a Hawker Fury or something with a top, no. top take, with its top cut off no it's, it's, brand it's new. absolutely brand new so you can put a bigger engine on it you can increase the payload and and all that stuff because by the end by the end of the war the, the, it's twice the horsepower and 
twice the weapon's payload, pretty much, isn't it? Yeah, and the en- engine cowling is kind of twice the length of that yeah. whopping yeah. great Griffin, yeah. Rolls-Royce Griffin engine in. I mean, it's an absolute beast. They've cut down the, the, the fuselage um, the uh, fuselage behind, yeah. so you've got this um, you know, bubble canopy, yeah, canopy. Yeah, which is just, you know, it's amazing. So it's quite a different plane, but of course it's still got pretty much the same design of the wing. Well, and the spar, this spar, this objet, my paperweight, you can hear that, dear listener, that is that is the same throughout, and and it's really interesting because uh, look, the people who work at this plant they're all they're all uh, they're all in aviation people, and uh, there were quite a few people I think who'd worked in air, making air conditioning units who ended up <laughs> who'd ended up doing I think, and and it was, a, it was quite a, quite I mean fascinating that they were saying this isn't this isn't on any other aircraft you don't you, it's not been done it hadn't been done before it hadn't been done since this idea of this sort of Self-supporting concertina. I, I, I don't know what I don't know what an engineer would would call that because obviously the idea is the stresses all bear each other out across it, and it's they, and it's not drilled, it's not fixed, it's just bent so that it it locks into place. Well, I never knew that. So that all from a paperweight, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, uh, that is the uh, weapons grade waffle you can expect from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Time for us to take a short break in which we shall enjoy a little bottled sunshine and armoured cow. An explanation when we return. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I didn't do the voice. James, World War II slang, bottle sunshine, what's that? Ah, yeah, that's beer. Excellent. And armoured cow? Uh, Canned milk, condensed milk. Condensed milk. Just what you want in your tea. In fact, actually, I once made that to try and see what... I had to do... I was filming (laughs) something and I had to dress up as a World War II Tommy Mm. and do a 15-mile route march with full kit. It was actually... It was fine. But um, halfway no, through, we... No one's shelling you and shooting at you. No one's shelling or shooting me. Strafing you, yeah. No, no, nothing <laughs> like that. So that was, it was quite easy. But um, halfway through, we had to make some, some tea, kind of British Army style. So what you do is you get, you, you get your tea leaves, you chuck it into boiling water, you add loads of sugar, and you add condensed milk and stir it all up. And that is your kind of wobble to yeah. Tommy's tea. And it's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> Did you do it with the on the with the petrol in the sandbox and all that? Though? Yeah, yeah. Well, we did, we no, not quite. So almost, I imagine that would make almost. it even more foul. Like yeah, the, we the had the little stove, the you know, with a little. Aroma of we, we were using sort of fire lighters rather than. <laughs> than but yeah, it would have been horrible. Right. So um, we talked about Vickers uh, just now as the as the parent company submarine, because uh, it's the Vickers Supermarine Spitfire, really. Yes. People like to call it the Supermarine Spitfire because that sounds it sounds a bit sexier, but it's the Vickers Supermarine Spitfire. It is really. Um, what became of Vickers? Because that, that's not a name on people's tongue anymore. No, well, all those all those companies, whether it be Vickers, De Havilland, you know, Bristol, all that lot, they um, they were all morphed into um, British Aerospace. Right. Well, now, now BAE is it is now. Right. Yeah, so they they still continue. And actually, BAE have got this incredible archive. So um, the R, uh, the Royal Aircraft Establishment factory, which is where they used to make the kind of you know SE fives and yeah you know, FE2s and stuff, the First World War biplanes, which were government-owned um, uh, uh, um, factory at Farnborough, which mm. is on the site where they used to have yeah. the Farnborough Air Show and everything. Yeah. There's one hangar left from pre-war, from 1911, I think it was when it was first wow. built. And that is no longer has any aircraft in it, but it's got the BAE archives, which includes the archives from Vickers and yeah. de Havilland and all yeah. the rest of it. And it is just amazing. In fact, actually, we, we've got to go down there. We should right. do a podcast on that. One of the things they've got, they've got the book that Jeffrey de Havilland Sr. was given as a 14-year-old by his mum 
of moths. And it says, you know, dear Jeffrey, hope you love this book on moths. You know, lots of love, mummy. Um, and that is it. And that's why it is the With tiger, tiger moth, moths, and, you know, moths. shifting off and all the rest of it. Absolutely. It's absolutely amazing. And they've got loads, they've got crates of models. They've got literally a model of yeah. every single British plane ever made. Wonderful. Um, it is a thing of wonder. Okay. Right. So we hope we've cleared that up um, <laughs> <laughs> for, for those of you listening. Now, we talked about the Spitfire's wing spar. So that's an object obscured within a famous machine. Now, yes. let's find something obscured. By history. By history. By time. A forgotten, a forgotten person from history, I think. Well, Second World War is just strewn with people that no one's ever heard of anymore. Yeah. And it is amazing how people still go on about Rommel, they go on about Monty, which yeah. we're certainly going to a lot, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Patton and so on. But there are a whole host of other people that have just completely been lost, but who were totally brilliant. And one of my great heroes is Francis Tuca, Lieutenant Colonel Sir Francis Tuca. And I think he's, he's the greatest... British Army general we never had. And what I mean by that is he damn well should have been an army commander, yep. but never had that opportunity for a, a variety of reasons, mainly poor health, actually. He had rheumatoid arthritis, which kept striking him down at kind of absolutely the wrong moment. But he's a really interesting character because he's, he's an Indian army man, which when you're joining up before the First World War yeah. or the outbreak of the First World War, that, that's where you want to be. That, that's the kind of the elite. And actually, that's one of the things that one of the hang-ups for Monty is, of course, he, he doesn't get selected for the Indian army. Yeah. Um, Tuka, his always nickname is always Gertie. So Gertie Tuka get, has, a, has a good First World War. He's in the Indian army, stays in the army after war, nearly, nearly retires to become well, an well, artist. Well, Gertie... I don't know why he's called Gertie. He's just his nickname. Is it, so maybe uh, his mum was called Gertrude. I mean, the thing is, mili- military yes. nicknames, because people are called Tiny if they're huge. Yes, it's exactly. all that sort of Dusty hil- Miller, hilarious exactly. humour. Right, yeah. okay. So G- Gertie Tuka, sorry. Okay. So I don't know why he's called Gertie Tuka. He just is. But anyway, he, he nearly nearly gives throws in the towel to become an artist. He's incredibly well read. He's very kind of, he's got an artistic temperament as well. He's super bright. And by the mid-1930s, he is running the um, training college at Quetta, right. which is the equivalent of Sandhurst, but for the Indian Army up in what is now Pakistan. And it's like a super important post. But in that Indian Army between the wars kind of period, there is a sort of attitude that it does. it's not really the dumb thing to talk shop. You know, At the end of a hard day of soldiering, you know, what you do is you talk about kind of polo and ladies and sports and you know, yeah. gin and its and stuff. Yeah. You don't talk about kind of tactics and everything. So he is constantly thinking about this. And he's writing pieces for the for RUSI, you know, Royal United Services yeah. Institute Journal, which is this kind of sort of still uh, an amazingly important defence thing. I had a guy in my front row at my preview show the other day who works there. There you are. Yeah. So he would do that. And he would do it under a pseudonym, which was Audax. Uh, and the reason he'd do this was because... You know, people who kind of talked about this kind that of stuff. That means the daring one, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it does. Yes, I think so, yes. And he would do this because it was kind of frowned upon. He was sort of seen as sort of a best eccentric, a kind of worse sort of dangerously subversive. Because Montgomery ran it, was famously sort of non-you because he's talked shop in the, in the mess. He, he would insist yeah. on discussing military stuff in the mess and people would like... Who is this? Who is this guy? Is, you know, just have another gin in it and kind of forget about it. It's not good. Not another good sundowner. Form. Right. No. So, so what's he writing as Audax? Well, he's just writing about the way modern war might go and, and right. thinking about all arms combat. He's thinking about um, what we would now call mission command. Um, he's thinking all sorts of things about how you harness air power with naval power. I mean, all the kind of stuff that comes to the fore 
in the Second World War. He's thinking about it. Anyway, by the, by the outbreak of war, he, he then gets promoted and becomes um, commander of the 4th Indian Division, which is a fine unit which gets sent out to the Middle East. And he comes in in, I think it's the very end of 1941, beginning of 1942, to command 4th Indian Division. He mm. really trains them up. And his big thing is about training. You know, if you, yep. if you do all the training, you know, train hard, fight easy. That's his kind of sort of motto, which is really universally accepted now. But <laughs> amazingly, it just wasn't particularly yeah. in 1941, well, because, 42. Well, because, because one of the interesting things about the way the, the, the British Army ran is, is is although you do have a staff college and although you do have Sandhurst and you do have these military intellectuals, even in a culture that is supposedly kind of uh, 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 not hostile to that, but but sort of not really into it, you you, you what you have is a because it's an imperial army, you never know where you're going to end up in charge. So no one's given any hard and fast doctrine. And the idea is you kind of figure it out once you get there. You kind of figure it out with the people you've been put in command of. And you and you work a way through, and so what you get is these 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 generals who they figured out for themselves. I mean, that's why some of these some generals didn't figure out the training before making sure their men were fit was necessarily the way to go about it. And because the British Army is an imperial force, and you you know you don't know if you're going to be in Malta one year and France waiting for the Germans, the or, next fighting or, or fighting wazes, or fighting wazes, yeah, and up, yes, up in some mountain pass. Up, no up, sure. literally up the Khyber Pass and, yeah. uh, with, with, with mules and, and, and rifles. You, you just don't know what you're going to get. So there's no point to general learning how to be, um, how to be a brilliant, brilliant at working with tanks and getting tanks and infantry to work together because that, he might never have to do that. So the, the British Army, unlike, the, unlike, of course, the Prussian military tradition, which is either you go west or you go east, You've only got two directions to go in if you're a German general. You're either you're either duffing up the French or you're duffing up the Russians. That that is absolutely true. And if you're in the Indian Army, you really are focusing on how to combat wazirs and well, worrying about and, Nazis. And maybe also one day have to deal with an internal um, uh, problem. You know, because the well, the, growing civil strife in India in going, the 1930s. Well, yeah, and and the you know the, the the mutiny, the rebellion is still a very very fresh memory uh, and, a, and a touchstone for nationalist politicians in India and you've had uh, the Amritsar massacre and all this sort of yep. stuff so so th- th- there's, there's plenty of other stuff for generals to be worrying about rather than combined operations. Except there's the a Tuka. pair of Chinooks going past. They go past uh, quarter past 11 most mornings uh, here they? in West London. Yeah we get a pair of Chinooks they, uh, I have no idea why they go over but we get a pair every... It's not every day. I think it's every other day. They come in and they, they're meant to follow the river. Helicopters are meant to follow the river in London in case something huh. horrible goes wrong. But they always, they tool over here. Up How from, interesting. Up from Richmond. Have you ever been in one? Um, uh, I've never been in a Chinook, no. No. Well, I don't know that we're being invaded. <laughs> I have once and it was great. It was really fantastic. I even had a guy with a sort of 50 cal hanging on the back. Oh. And, yeah, it was great. Well, I had a stint in, in, in Helmand province, which wasn't a huge oh. amount of fun. But in between, it was pu- the, the kind of the boredom and the misery of being yeah. in Helmand was punctuated by occasional helicopter rides, which yeah. were just brilliant. Yeah. I shouldn't really say that, well, but no, it was, but when it was I, really when good I, fun. When, we, when I went out there to entertain the troops, it was just before the full drawdown and we didn't... We didn't get any fun helicopter rides. No, I did get sorry. to fire the howitzer on the gun line. And well, that's pretty good. God knows who was at the other end of that. I think, I think, it was a, I think we fired a blank anyway. At least I hope we did. 
anyway, back anyway, to yeah, Tuca. Yeah. So Tuca, unlike all these other, um, his peers in the Indian army, mm. is thinking about the European war, is thinking about Nazis and the rise of the Imperial Japanese and all the rest of it, and thinking about modern technology and modern advancements in, in weaponry and how that might be brought together. And anyway, by the time he gets out to Egypt, in, uh, and he, he doesn't take up command of his division straight away. So at the moment, for a little bit, he's at a loose end. Yeah. And he goes out to the Gazala line, which is being prepared, um, which is about 15 miles to the west of the city of Tobruk. So what's happened is there's been this ding-dong back yeah. and forth across the North Africa desert between Libya and Egypt throughout 1941. And what has happened is the British 8th Army have pushed Rommel's uh, forces, his combined German-Italian force, back um, in the early part, uh, in the late part of 1941, November, yeah. um, November, December 1941. They've been pushed back. Then Rommel has counterattacked in early January, pushed them back a little bit. And this is the kind of where they're at yeah. in the spring of 1942. And Tuca takes one look at this and just goes, this is absolutely insane. You've got to Brook, which held out for nine months with almost nothing, which has already got defences all the way around it. Just put everyone there. You don't need a line. Because if you've got a line, it can be outflanked. At some point, the line's got to end. Yeah. Uh, and it's not really joined up. And the line as it existed was 40 miles long with lots of gaps in it. She was sort of filled with wire and mines. But it's all a bit hopeless. And it's really flat, the desert around there. So it's comparatively easy for anyone to outflank it, just get around the back. He says, why on earth don't you just reinforce to Brook, turn it into the kind of modern-day lines of Torres Vedras, you know, which Wellington famously did. Yeah. Um, and eventually Rommel will have to turn and confront it because he, otherwise he's going to have his lines of supply are going to be severed. So if he charges off and just bypasses to Brook, he's still got his supply lines coming from totally, further west. Vulnerable, yeah. Right, right. So you, you have to deal with it. And it's so obvious. And Neil Ritchie, who is the new commander of... Eighth Army scratches his head and says, no, I don't really fancy doing that. So Tuca goes back and talks to Orkinlek, who is the commander-in-chief of Middle East, and says, look, this is just insane. And no one likes this kind of Indian Army guy who's sort of a bit of a know-it-all, telling them what to do. So they ignore it. And what happens? Yeah. Worst disaster, the absolute nadir of British fortunes in the Western War, in the war in, in Europe. Yeah. The fall of Tobruk on the 21st of June, 1942, pushed back to the Alamein line. The only reason that 8th Army is stopped, is um, it survives, is because of the sterling work of the Desert Air Force, the RAF, yeah. stopping, you know, absolutely just hammering the, the, their pursuers, the Italians and Germans. Yeah. And all of this could have been stopped. And time and time again, Tuca, when he finally does take commands, goes, um, I don't want to kind of, you know, push it too hard, but maybe this would be a good plan. Everyone ignores him. And it all ends up in sort of, you know, being much more complicated than it need be. He, did the, he does this fantastic deconstruction of the Alamein battle plan. And it's completely brilliant. And you just, he's 100% right. Yeah. There's then this time where he takes a, there's a Wadi Akarit, which is on the 6th of April, 19, um, 1943, in Tunisia, southern Tunisia. And he takes his 4th Indivisions and he outflanks the Italian line, Italian-German line, by taking them up through the mountains Blasts this massive hole in the in the line, but Ten Corps, who are supposed to push through, are really slow, and so this opportunity to completely destroy them there and then never happens. Yeah. And finally, he gets this amazing moment, which is the Battle of Majurda at the end, uh, end of the campaign, and he goes right. This is what we're going to do, and he does this fantastic all arms combined arms assault with harnessing. Um, Anti-aircraft guns, 3.7 inches in an anti-tank roll. He uses aircraft. 
It's just completely brilliant. And it totally smashes the German line in about 24 hours. It does exactly what he says it's going to do. And everyone's forgotten about it because it was too easy a victory. But it wasn't an easy victory. It was just very well fought. It was. It is probably the best executed battle the British do in the entire Second World War. So... Then what happens to Tuca though? Well, Tuca then goes on, and everyone. And I mean, he is, he act- not, is he not good at the? Is he not good at the? Because sh- there's got to be. He's not good at the schmoozing. Schmoozing. There's right. got to be the grifting that you've got to do. You've got to blow your own trumpet. You need a patron. Uh, I mean, you know, Montgomery famously has Brooks patronage right from the start of the of the war, right from the start. And as Brooks gets higher up, so does Monty, because you know they've all got to trust each other and all that sort of thing. And. So is Tuca lacks a patron. Why is Tuca? Why have we forgotten about him? Because he lacks a patron. Because he lacks a patron. Because he is just a bit too good at showing his exasperation at stupid people who don't know as much as him. Yeah. Um, and proving and proving himself to be right, which he always does. Because yeah. and he just makes everyone else look a bit stupid because he's so good. And because he hasn't got that patron pushing him forward. Everyone, everyone just goes, who's this smart ass? You know? And so after North Africa, so where? So after he... North Africa, and interestingly, von Arnim actually surrenders to him. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's quite good. On, on, wow. um, yeah, well, I suppose the other, I suppose, I suppose the other things. If he hasn't got a patron, patron, and there is a very, very pushy uh, general in North Africa who maybe doesn't want any competition, um, who um, yeah. is an absolute. Uh, shit to anyone who threatens yeah. him in uh, with talent as much as people who are you know and we we're, it's the M word it's Montgomery yeah. you have to come back to again and again and again yeah. if you're talking about allied efforts in the West if he sees anyone any good if he can't sub, if he can't suborn them like someone like Brian because he Brian Horrocks you know, or, or yeah or, or or any of those or guys yeah, exactly or Lee or or or, or uh, um, Dempsey you know because what what he does is he creates this. Basically, uh, uh, his gang, his crew. If he can't get them under under his umbrella, working the way he wants them to work, and if they've got their own ideas, maybe maybe somewhere in the mix is you know. well. That that is exactly <laughs> what that you know. That is what happens to Tuka, and that is his kind of that's his tragedy so in a way. So what happens? So yeah. he is then still commanding fourth fourth Indian Division yeah. at the Second Battle of Casino. In right. southern Italy, right, which is the infamous bombing of the monastery. Now, what happens is uh, he is subordinated to uh, um, Bernard Freyberg mm. and to New- uh, the New Zealand Corps. Yeah, and Freyberg is really promoted above his capabilities. Yeah, I mean, it's because amazing. he's a New Zealander. Well, it's, but it's amazing he's still in 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 work. Yeah, because he's Freyberg, Freyberg, Freyberg is of course responsible for the disaster at Crete. Of course, um, and and I think you can only really say he's. Res- he is responsible for that. Yeah. I mean, you, you can read that, read, read what happens at Crete from all sorts of different angles and look at it different ways. And of course, Ultra hangs heavy in the, when people talk about Crete, oh, we'd read their plans and we knew what they were going to do. And, and always, always with Ultra intelligence, it, just because you've got what the Germans might be going to do in front of you doesn't mean they're going to do that. Doesn't mean might that you your mind. might change your mind. Doesn't mean that you've actually got the means to deal with that. You know, blah 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 blah. Because uh, Ultra often gets sort of pulled out as this sort of uh, this sort of panacea, this sort of panacea, right? or, or like, uh, oh, that explains everything, or what they should have known they didn't know. And in fact, it, any piece of intelligence fits into a much a much bigger, bigger, oh, and much more complex uh, 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 picture. If you're the person making the decisions and having to deal with that, well, a classic but, example, a classic example of ultra not working is they invade southern Italy on the promise that that Hitler is going to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line, which is yeah. you know a couple of hundred miles north of Rome, 
Um, and then Castlering puts in a quite a good show at Salerno and he changes his mind. Yeah. Um, and so actually what is going to be a very easy victory into Rome isn't a very easy victory. But anyway, so Tuca well, is... just don't so, start so, so, at the bottom though, isn't it? Yes. But Tuca is a... So Tuca is a casino yeah. and he is subordinated to Freiburg. He's really thick and not, not, yeah. not very good at his job. And he says... But, but and, Freiburg, and they've got to try and... They've got to try and block this, this massive... But this, you, this but, hold, hold on, James, because you said Freiburg's in his job because he's from New Zealand. And that... That's basically it's what, coalition warfare. You know, you know, you've, you're trying to harness the dominions. Yeah. You know, the, the New Zealanders in, in World War Two, like the Canadians, punch massively above their weight. I mean, they they are yeah. absolutely stupendously good. Yeah. And and courageous. Um. And in particular, in the case of the Canadians, they're all volunteers as well. Um. They're not conscripts. I mean, so you've got to kind of pay a nod to that, and that that's the price you pay is having maybe a not quite so good commander. Anyway, so Freiburg yeah. is this corps commander, which is above a division. So it goes army, corps, division, yep. brigade in the British instance. In Italian. terms of size, yeah, is that company platoon. Yeah, company platoon section. section. Um, bloke, bloke on his own. Bloke on his own, yes. <laughs> Wishing he was somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he's a corps commander, and they're given the job of trying to get this massive. And, and the reason that they're trying to get this is this spur that looks out over this valley. And in the valley is the road to Rome. And you cannot get up that road to Rome until you've taken out this high ground on which guns are and can see everything moving down on the valley or just get slaughtered. So it's absolutely essential that they take out this, this spur, the end of this yeah. spur, this Monte uh, Casino massive. And what Tuca suggests is going much wider and much further in, where the ground is higher, but actually, once you get up the early slopes, it's much easier to get across, and just isolate it. So, because it's like on a, on, a, on a V. So he says, instead of going up here, you go up here and just surround them effectively. Yeah. yeah. And it's a really, really good idea. And, and Freiburg says, mm, yeah, but that's mountains. I don't really, uh, no, I don't really like that. No, let, can we just take, take, do the original plan? And Tuca goes, okay, fine. But, you know, you do realise you've got this monastery here, which is, I know it's a monastery, but it's also a fortress. So can you show me the plans? Because what you're going to have to do, the only way we're going to do this to winkle out all the Germans is absolutely pulverise the entire position. Yeah. So not the monastery, but the actual spur with 1,000-pound bunker-busting bombs. That's the only way this is going to work because you simply cannot expect infantry to take out a position that strong. It's yeah. not going to work. You could further up, as I've suggested, but you've said, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. So please can you give me the plans of the monastery that you want me to take out? And everyone goes, well, we don't have any. And he goes, so hang on a minute, you're asking me to do this and you don't even know what's there. So he then sends off a junior officer on his staff to Naples to scour the secondhand bookshops to see if he can find a book on Monte Cassino, the monastery itself. Finds it and says, okay, this is, thing. This is what you're going to have Dear to deal with. God. Do you realise this is one of the greatest works of art? In uh, It contains great works of art, and it is this magnificent historic building. If you're asking me to do this, we're going to have to pulverise the entire massive, the, the German positions on the high point, which is 0.593, as well as the monastery. Not singling out the monastery, but as well as the monastery. And everyone goes, yeah, but I think we're going to have to do it, aren't we? And he goes, well, all right, on your head be it then. And at that point, he gets struck down with uh, a renewed bout of rheumatoid arthritis and is basically carrying out the battle from his hospital bed. So probably stress-related. Stress because this is Possibly. the thing. Possibly. You, you do see this um, with, with generals who get, who get... I mean, Rommel famously gets ill all the time when things yes. are going badly. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Or when things might, might be about to go yeah, really badly. Suddenly he's ill. Suddenly and has he's to go really home. crook and has to go home, yeah. Yeah, you do uh, get that. And, and that, and that happens to Rommel at least twice. Um, but but it, and, and and of course this is the thing, 
we're talking about this at you know 75 year distance um and we're talking about it as things on maps and hills the thing with with generalship and and i think it's always very interesting you you know the Lots of accounts of what it's like to be the guy in the tank or the guy in the foxhole. Generalship is this other complete different thing where you're making these decisions that are going to cost people their lives. Every decision you make will cost someone their life. I mean, just imagine what Tuka's feeling like. Oh, so, well, so he yeah. knows that his men are trained for this kind of operations. They're, 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 they are trained in mountain warfare. Yeah. So he knows they're capable of doing this operation. He he feels completely confident that his 4th Indian Division can get up where he's suggesting and and have a pretty good chance of achieving what needs to be achieved. Yeah. And yet he's being told he can't do that. Yeah. I mean, imagine how frustrating that is. Yeah. What then happens is the only way you're going to get that position flattened with the kind of scale of bombs uh, uh, and level of bombage that you need is using the strategic air force. And the strategic air force is an air force that operates in its own right, whereas a tactical air force is one there to support the ground yeah. forces. Chinese whispers then happens. So what they say is the, the, or the request goes up saying, please, can you bulverize the whole area, including this area here? By the time they actually come over, there's no 1,000-pound bombs whatsoever. There's just 500-pounders, which yeah. are you know, half the size. And they only attack the monastery rather than the wider entire position. And the whole thing doesn't work. And, you know, it's a complete disaster and it's a massive PR cock yeah. up and blah, blah, blah. And it, and it keeps going on and the battle keeps going on till May. But at that point, Tuca becomes ill. He has to then step down from 4th Indian Division. And it's not till later in the war that he fully recovers and gets posted as a corps commander to India that he finally takes on and does great stuff in the lead up to independence and partition in 1947. Goodness me. And he's buried in Cornwall. He's buried in Cornwall. And he wrote, he wrote these fantastic letters with the guy who was doing the official history in the 1960s, all of which you can read at the National Archives in Kew. And they're so entertaining. They're brilliant because you can see his frustration at all these sort of moronic people who don't know their history and haven't studied the Battle of Cani properly and all this yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just fantastic. And I have to say, he's pretty withering about Monty at Alamey. Oh, brilliant. Excellent. It's well, great stuff. Anything. Anyway, he's a real all, hero. August the Monty. Uh, and, he's, and, and what's really interesting, when you look at what he says, nine times out of ten, he's absolutely bang on the money. And it just goes to show that if you don't have that supporter, that champion that you're talking about, a Brook for Monty or whoever it might yeah. be, your chances of getting somewhere, even in the Second World War, unless you have a massive dollop of luck, yeah. and he has no luck whatsoever and has problems with you know illness and stuff, yeah. you're going to get nowhere. Well, that's it for today. Um, so Spitfire Spur, Tuca, I hope we've uh, informed. But this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end. It is perhaps the end of the beginning. I don't do impressions. <laughs> and here we are and here we stand. Veritable rock of salvation in this drifting world. We hope you've enjoyed this first episode of We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Please do subscribe, give us a rating and leave us a review. Most importantly, send us your questions and stories. On Twitter, use the hashtag WeHaveWays. Um, and please, if we've got anything wrong, we really want to hear from you. Or if you disagree, because... That's all good. Um, we'll be. Back. We like debate. We like debate. That's what we're Unlike Monty. Do. Absolutely. Unlike Monty. Well, we like no. belly aches. We like belly aches. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Alvida Zane. <laughs> Cheerio.